It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, week six of Easter, which means Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is. Uh, we uh, unfortunately do not have a video for you this morning. We sent out a request via email uh, for uh, some uh, Jesus is videos, and we had four people who did their job, which means there's like 150 of you who didn't. Uh, we've got one week left. Week seven is our last week, just to be clear. Uh, which means we need a few more videos in uh, this coming week so that we can have one final spectacular uh, Jesus is uh, video and, and f- finish the series off with a bang. Let's begin with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come this morning and uh, as we do every Sunday morning, We invite you into our presence, into our home, into this place here, uh, and most importantly, into our hearts. God, uh, this morning, uh, I ask that you use this empty vessel uh, as a vessel for your word. Lord, uh, that you might fill up the cups of those who are listening. Lord, speak to them. Speak to them your word this morning, not my word, your word. And... um, God, I pray that we be a changed people. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Uh, so today, uh, we continue the series, Jesus Is, and we're talking about Jesus is the uh, image of the invisible God. And uh, you may have guessed uh, from the two readings that we had uh, that there is a nice connection with the Genesis account. If you haven't thought of this before, Well, now's the day. Uh, So when uh, God creates humanity, he creates humanity in God's image, right? Uh, In fact, this becomes a a really central, uh, important point there in early Genesis, Genesis uh, 1, 26 and 27, as we read today. Uh, We're going to read a few chapters out of early Genesis. So I'm going to ask that you uh, have your Bibles at the ready, uh, today, I, I don't have scriptures up on a PowerPoint except for just one, uh, so you're, you're going to need to follow along uh, in here, and, and you will want to. So uh, let's begin this way. Let's, let's just open up to the, the first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and let's take a look at, at what we find here. We've got table of contents. My pastor's Bible introduction, preface. All right, Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. So I should say, God creates everything, right? The whole world at this point has been created, and then there's one thing left to do, and that is to create humanity. It's the capstone of it all. Right? So it's all sitting there waiting, and then God does this. So in, starting in verse 26, God says, let us make man, or uh, your uh, note might say uh, humanity or humankind. Uh, the word here is Adam, let, let us make humanity, right? 
in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then twice, God says, so God created man in his own image, and then it says it again, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. I don't know about you. Uh, I don't know what you know about whether the ancient world or the modern world, uh, history uh, or uh, modernity, but there are very few places in history where you find as high a view of humanity, of who we are in our very essence, as you do right here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. God tells us that not only are we created, we are created in God's very image. This is, this is great news, right? This is wonderful news. It has all sorts of uh, reaching implications uh, about how we should treat our neighbor, how we should treat the person down the street who uh, is not a very nice person, how we should treat our coworkers, how we should treat our children, our parents. It, it all flows out of well, the fact that we are all created in God's very image. But I will say this. There's a a specific part in these two chapters where where we get a little bit of a hint as to what exactly that means. Because it it can mean a lot of things. But but I want to hone in on the one thing that it does say. So if you look back in 26, it says this. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then... What I think is it gives a little bit of a definition here. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, and over the creeping things that creep on the earth, which is to say everything, right? Let them have dominion. Dominion is very much a kingly, regal word. It is, uh, it is in a way, a sense of of power and control. We were meant to have dominion over the earth. And in fact, when uh, we get to chapter 2, what we find is that Adam and Eve are created, and then God says he gives them a job. If you thought the job of of Genesis 1 and 2 for Adam and Eve was to simply lounge around and eat bonbons, that was not Eden. The job there was, was two parts. It was to work the land and to keep the land or to protect it. Their job was, in essence, to serve and protect. That's what they are. They're the original cops of the, of the world, right? They serve and they protect, which gives us an idea of what it means to have dominion uh, in God's uh, biblical worldview here, which is that to, uh, to take care of this thing that uh, is set before us, we are, we are in a way servants to it. 
It both serves us and we serve it. There's a symbiotic relationship that's happening in the world in Genesis chapter 1. And it works well together, right? This is what we find actually throughout Scripture as to the way humanity as a whole should work. We are to serve one another in this self-giving love that flows in a circular fashion. Well, so also it seems with creation itself. We go on and we read in verse 28 that God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And here it is again, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And I'm going to suggest to you that this is not the kind of dominion or subduing that you might be thinking of. Because in the very next verse here, we read something interesting about the state of nature in an Edenic world. Verse 29, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. The trees and the seeds and and the plants. Those are the food. And to every beast on the earth, every bird of the heaven, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. There it is again. The green plants for food, both for the beasts and for us, apparently, in an Edenic world. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And it was evening, morning, and the sixth day, right? Uh, What you notice here is uh, a world in which uh, animals are not eating animals uh, and humans are not eating animals. I will confess, uh, I have prepared for Mother's Day a salmon dinner tonight uh, for my wife. Uh, That's that's my plan. Uh, Last night, we had chicken. And uh, clearly, I'm not living according to these Edenic ideals, right, is, is my point. So I, I'm not trying to get us to become vegetarian, uh, though if that is of interest to you, I will not uh, judge you in, in, in that way. Uh, but something happens, doesn't it? Something changes, pretty dramatically, in fact. And so we start with this one world, a, a Genesis 1 world, or a Genesis 1 and 2 world, and then, well, Genesis Genesis 3 happens, and we start with this high view of humanity, right? As high as you can get. In fact, uh, Psalm 8, you can turn there if you like, but uh, I'll just read it for us. Psalm 8 explains to us, it's a creation psalm, and it tells us about creation, and most importantly, right in the middle of it, which is the most important point, it kind of leads to this point, it tells us about humanity, and it tells us who we are. And this is what Psalm 8 says. It says, O Lord our God, how majestic is is your name in all the earth because you've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens, when I look up into the sky, I see the work of your fingers. I see the moon and the stars which you have set into place. 
And then he asks the question, what is man? What is humanity that you're mindful of him? And the son of man, which is just another way in this case of saying humanity. And what is the son of man that you care for him? Right? God, why, who, who are we that you are even mindful of us and that you care for us? And then he gives the answer. And he says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. The word here being Elohim, which is another word for, for God. And you might even have a translation that says this. Because some translations say that you have made humans a little lower than God. This is a, as high a view as hum, of humanity as you can find, right? That you have God, and then you have that humans just below the God of the universe, right? And it goes on, and it makes it clear that he's referencing Genesis 1 when he says, You've crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him, and here's our word again, dominion over the works of your hands, which is to say creation. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. And then, it, it, just like Genesis 1, it names all the things that are under our feet, which is sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so to have dominion and to be made in God's image is to to be kings and queens of the earth. It's to be rulers. It gets back to the whole Jesus is Lord sermon that I preached a few weeks ago, right? That we too are meant to be co-rulers with God, which is not to say we are gods, and we don't ever put ourselves in that place. But God made us just a little lower than the Elohim, however you wish to translate that, and has given us a place of power and, and ruling in an important place that we need to understand, and we need to understand it rightly. And I would suggest to you, actually, that this is exactly what happens through the human uh, course of history, that we have all misunderstood what it means to be co-rulers. I think the, the history books are a record of the warped ways in which humanity has had dominion over the created order. And I would suggest to you that some of these are even found in the Bible itself. It demonstrates the ways in which humanity has warped our place in the world. Before the fall, I said, Adam and Eve are given a job. Their job was to serve and to protect. But over time, they begin to serve themselves and to protect their own. And the course of human history is this sort of serving and protecting. And usually at the expense of somebody else or others or the marginalized or those who have no power. Turn with me to Genesis 5. We'll see something else about the image of God in Genesis 5. 
for me, I just had to turn a page, and there it was. Starting up in verse 1, it goes like this. This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created man. He made him in the likeness of God, clearly referencing chapter 1, right? He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Again, clearly referencing chapter 1. And he blessed them, and he named them man, or Adam, when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son. And here's the interesting part to me, in his own likeness, after his image. This is what it says, likeness and image. Same exact language here, right? And he names him Seth. What's my point? It's actually a pretty simple point, which is to say the humanity passes down this image of God from one generation to the next to the next by merely having children. We have nowhere in Scripture to suggest that the image of God was somehow rooted out of humanity. That is not what we find in Scripture. We do find something else going on, though, so hold that thought for a second. What we do not find is that the image of God is taken away. It's just that something else gets added. So let's keep turning. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 9 now. Let's see what we find here. Preceding Genesis chapter 9, we have the flood account. Oh, I almost forgot. Turn back. There is this one other part. Uh, you see, the, uh, chapter 5 is one of these chapters that in your Bible reading, uh, uh, you, you might actually read chapter 5. This is probably one of the genealogical accounts that you read as you're trying to read through the Bible. And you read this one because it appears at the front of your Bible. But by the time you get used to reading these genealogies, uh, you might realize, oh, I can just kind of skip through these a little bit and, and, and lightly you know, jump, jump to the next page. But don't, don't do that with this one, because there's something interesting that happens toward the end of chapter 5, and it starts in, in verse 28. It starts in verse 28, and it says this. So, so we have the genealogies that start with Adam, and it goes from one person to the next to the next. And then we get to Lamech, who lived 182 years, and he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, and this is the person we'll meet over the next few chapters here. He called his name Noah, and he said, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. The name Noah itself means relief or rest or peace, right? Relief. And that's what he's supposed to do. It's, it's something of a promise. If not a promise, at least a hope, right? And what, what is the hope? Do you know what the hope really is here? Why, why does uh, Lamech really hope that out of the ground uh, that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work? Why, what is happening here? What is this a reference to? It's a reference to Genesis chapter 3 and the cursing that happens when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree they're not supposed to eat from, correct? Remember this? And then to Eve, he gives this curse where she has pain in childbearing, 
And to Adam, he gives a curse where he curses the land itself, and he has to toil, and it says he has to uh, produce food painfully. And what we find here is this hope. This hope in the person of Noah that somehow maybe Noah will reverse this curse. Right? That maybe he'll do it. That, that something about this person will fix it. And then we get to the Noah story. And what do we get? Well, we get a reset of the whole earth, don't we? We essentially, in the person of Noah, we get a second Adam. This is, this is really what we get. So we have the first Adam, who is the only man living on earth. And then, ultimately, Adam's children. And then when we get to the Noah story, we have the flood that wipes out the earth. And then we have, well, Noah. And then Noah's children. And in this way, Noah becomes, well, something of a new Adam. Hint, hint, this gets us to the New Testament at some point. And there's this hope. There's a hope for the reversal of a curse. And the curse given is, well, the one about toil and pain. Ultimately, I hate to say it, but the hope is, well, it's not, it's not uh, fulfilled. It's a hope that is, well, unfulfilled. At least the deeper hope is unfulfilled. Because Noah does produce something out of the ground that gives relief. Do you know what that is? It may not be what you expect. This is a good Bible quiz day here. What? Alcohol is the answer. Somebody got it. Right. So what is the first thing that Noah does after the ark? He plants a vineyard and he finds himself drinking wine. And it turns out that this is the, quote, relief for humanity that he gives the world, right? Uh, this is not the relief we need. This is not the hope that we're looking for. We need something more than a glass of wine to get us through a lifetime, right? We need something deeper. We need something to solve that cursed problem that is our human nature. There is a pattern, however, that we find in chapter 5, and that is that the image of God is still being passed down from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. But there is an unfulfilled hope that happens in chapter 5, and that is we were hoping for a new Adam who would relieve us from the curses of the garden, and instead we get a glass of wine. Let's turn now, finally, to Genesis chapter 9. We have the flood story. The flood ends. God proceeds to make a covenant with Noah, and then we get this. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, some of this should sound familiar. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Where, where have we heard this before? 
We heard it just in chapter 1 with the Adam story, right? And so, uh, John, if we could put up the parallel, uh, what we find in Genesis 9 is the world as it is, as compared to the world as it was, and perhaps even should be, right? The world as it is, is uh, the Genesis 9 world. The world as it should be is the Genesis 1 world. I'm going to read from Genesis 9, but you can look at 1 sitting right next to it. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, for the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Now we are no longer people who have dominion, it seems. We are people who are to be feared, people who cast dread over the earth. This does sound like a better description of humanity across the ages, if you ask me. It goes on, though, and it addresses the issue that I brought up and why I'm eating salmon tonight. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And whereas in Genesis 1, you don't have the death and the dying and the killing that is required for basic sustenance, well, in Genesis 9, death and the cycle of death seems to be part of the world order that is created at this point. But it goes on, and in verse 5, we find this, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. There's this repetition that's happening. It sounds a lot like the repetition that we found about the image of God. And so then it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For, and here it says it again, God made man in his own image. And there's some really good news and there's some really bad news here. And the good news goes like this. We haven't lost the image of God. Hey, it's still there. But the bad news is this. We've taken on some new baggage, we as humans. We've warped our humanity. We warped our understanding of reigning and ruling with God. We've warped our self-image. We've warped the image of others. We've warped the image of the world that, was, uh, that we were created to protect and to serve. And worst of all, we've even warped the way we imagine God by subverting God's reigning and God's ruling with our own. We have tried to take our seat in the place of God, and it has led to our ruin. There was a, a, a Russian, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, who spent a lot of time in a Russian gulag in the 20th century. 
And this is what he says about humanity and what he learned about humanity during this period of time. He, he says uh, that uh, he, he's talking about the nature of good and evil and where the difference sits. And he says that there really is no such thing as a good nation and an evil nation. And there's not even a, there's not a, a good race and an, and an evil race. And, and there's not even a, a good person and an evil person. And he says, and I quote now, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Pascal says it this way about humanity. He says, what a chimera man is. What a novelty, a monster, uh, a chaos, a contradiction, a prodigy, judge of all things, an imbecile, worm, depository of truth, a sewer of error and of doubt, the glory and the refuse of the universe, right? What a contradiction humanity is, Pascal says. And this indeed, I think, is a wonderful definition of what humanity is, because we all know there are such wonderful things about human accomplishment. I think I said it the very first time I flew in here, and we, uh, we took the metro uh, into D.C., and there's this, you know, one of those really long escalators, uh, and you, you go up and you see all of the huge buildings. And I remember standing on this stage and thinking, and, and even I said it, I was like, we did this, right? <laughs> like, we've done, humanity has created some amazing things. And then you don't have to think too hard either about all of the terrible things that humanity has done as well. The gulags, world wars. And so you have in humanity a contradiction. You have the height of all things, and you have, as Pascal says, the sewer. We are uh, a little bit lower than God, and uh, we are worms, right? And somehow, humanity holds this contradiction together, and this is what we are. This is the state of human affairs. And I'll say, if there's one reason uh, why the Bible endures among people who don't even believe it, it's this is that it gives an accurate description of humanity. And it points to something within us that is undeniably true. It points to that which is good and glorious and made in the image of God, and it points to that which is sinful and decrepit and dying and falling apart. And it says these things are held in one body.
one body. Until we get to the person of Jesus Christ. Let's turn together to the book of Colossians, our New Testament passage for today. In Colossians, which is, as I said, in our New Testament, if you get past Acts and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. What we find, we find a description of the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll notice that as Paul describes Jesus here, he too uses the language of the image of God, right? Which should draw us back to the creation account. But it draws us back just one step further than that Adam, right? Well, let's read together. Starting in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him or by him all things were created. That's that step back, right? So, by Christ, all is created. Now, you cannot say that of Adam. Humanity, in and of itself, you you cannot say, is the creator of all things. Humanity might be the pinnacle of all creation, but it's certainly not doing the creating. And yet here, we have a description of Christ, in which he is said to be the image of the invisible God by whom all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, there's that word again, or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. That is like a at present moment, this, is, this whole thing that we call creation is being held together by the person of Christ. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What do we find here? We find what we found with all of those other Jesus is phrases that we talked about, right? Jesus is the resurrection, and so are you, right? Uh, Jesus is Lord, and so are you, right? Or Jesus is the Christ, or a Messiah, or the anointed one, and, and you're anointed too. But as I said then, it's a little different. It's the same, but it's different, right? Because we are humans made in the image of God, but Jesus is in the image of God in all of God's fullness, creating the world, sustaining the world, and redeeming the world. It's the same, but it's different, right? But this person, Jesus Christ, as I said, well, he is redeeming the world. 
And as we get to the end of that passage there, it appears that whether on earth or in heaven, he makes peace by the blood of his cross. That through the death of Christ and through the resurrection of Christ, the world is being redeemed. The king of the kingdom is sitting on his throne and he begins to take in new citizens of this new kingdom. And everything changes at this point. The world changes at this point. We have somebody who's not just a Noah, who is hopefully reversing the curse and then gives us some sort of false relief. We instead have somebody who is able to reverse the curse by undoing that which is in us and getting rid of that baggage that has been added along the way to humanity and teaches us what it means to really be human. There is no paradox of humanity that Pascal talks about in the person of Christ. There is not a line between good and evil running through the heart of Christ like Solzhenitsyn talked about. In the person of Jesus, we find all of God. And through Christ, we are all taught how to be human again. We are indeed made in the image of God. And this is a beautiful, wonderful thing. And it should teach us that with one another, we owe each other respect. Because inside that other person sits the image of your Creator. And we owe ourselves a certain amount of respect. Enough respect to treat ourselves the way we should be treating the very God who created this world. But all of this is even possible because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, who not only shows us what it means to be human again, he offers us the path to it. This is what it means for Jesus to be in the image of the living God. Let's pray together. God, our Father, <clears throat> you are in heaven and you sent your Son to this earth that you might redeem this earth, that you might gather us, your people, up together into a new kingdom that has new values and that looks like a new kind of humanity that looks a lot like Jesus and a lot like the original Adam, that it looks like uh, more Eden than it does uh, the nations of this world. And God, getting us there cost you everything. It cost you the death of your son, that he might be raised again from the dead. And God, we do not take that lightly. And today, as we come and we prepare our hearts to take communion, we are reminded of just what it took. 
the death of your son, the nails on the cross. And we are reminded, Lord, that it is only through him that we find our true humanity and that we return to you in fullness. And so this morning, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.